It's kind of nice to be um, back and talking to Barry again. We, we decided after July we'd take a month off of talking to each other. Uh, mostly I think he was sick of my text messages and Slack messages and emails and phone calls. He, he needed a break from me. So it's, it's really gracious of him to welcome me <laughs> into this space. Um, and it's, it's lovely to be back here again. I was here a couple of years ago. Um, sharing the word, and your carpet is so much more attractive now. <laughs> well done. <laughs> but no, it's lovely to be here. Hey, I was, um, I was catching up with some teenagers the other day, and it reminded me of when I was a teenager. That's never a good thing. Um, because it reminded me of a game that we used to play at high school. Now, I'm not sure if this was just my generation or all of them, so we're, we're going to check. Who, who played the game Truth or Dare? when they were teenagers. Okay, so it wasn't just us, all right. But for those of you who, you know, escaped this high school torture, um, essentially it's this game where there is no upside for you, but you have to play it. Because if you don't play it, you're automatically not cool, all right? So you have to play it, but there's no win. So basically somebody goes to you, hey, Steph, truth or dare, and in that split second, you've got to decide whether you are willing to share something completely vulnerable and private in your life with a group of teenagers who are likely to use it as ammunition for the rest of your high school experience, or dare you do something that is either risky, dangerous, embarrassing, or likely to get you expelled. These were the options, but you had to play it because you wanted to be cool, right? And I hated this game. Like, it was, it was torture, but, the, you know, the insecure person in me, you know, wanted to be seen as joining in, and, and so we'd end up playing this game. And there was no upside. There was no upside. But as I was thinking about this and, and chatting with these teenagers the other day, I realised that maybe truth and dare doesn't really apply as well in our culture today as it did 15, 20, 50 years ago. Because now I reckon to proclaim something as truth might very well be the most daring and dangerous thing you could possibly do. I mean, you think about it. In the last couple of generations, our entire culture's understanding of what truth is has dramatically shifted. A couple of generations ago, truth was defined by something which was externally validated based on evidence. You know, that was what was truth. So this happened because we've got the evidence to prove that this has happened. This is how something works. We've got the evidence to back that up. Now, truth is opinion. Your opinion about something is truth. It's not validated by an external something we can point to. It's now validated by an internal thing. Well, this feels right to me. This makes me feel comfortable. I like this. This makes sense. It fits within my moral values and codes and therefore it must be right. And this is the culture that our young people and that people coming into faith with Jesus are experiencing and coming from. In fact, I think this is the culture that sometimes pervades even the way that we think about our own faith, that maybe truth isn't something that is just defined, that can be uh, pointed to, that has evidence to back it up, but now truth is opinion. 
Here's where we see this really get in trouble in our culture. When you have different truths. I mean, I don't know if you've ever seen Facebook, but it's basically the definition of people spouting opinion as truth, deeply held, totally believed truth against each other. Because we can, in our culture, have two mutually different ideas of what a truth around something is. The problem is that it causes us to be able to completely not have a decent conversation around anything. Because we're not just questioning or discussing ideas. We're we're not debating a a concept. We're debating people's truth because their opinion is their new truth. I find this really fascinating. And I find the way that it seeps into into our churches and into the way that we do discipleship incredibly interesting. And I think this is what Paul was talking about in the book where he wrote to Timothy, in 1 Timothy, in the letter that he wrote. You see, Paul had picked up Timothy on his journey some 10 years earlier. He'd seen something in him which he, he knew was potential to be used by God. And so he picked him up, he'd been mentoring him for 10 years. And then when the church in Ephesus started falling apart because people were teaching different truths... They were debating about stuff. They were arguing. They were basically making the church look dreadful, not only internally, but externally for all of the community around. What does Paul do? He sends Timothy, young, untested Timothy. There's a different sermon there, but that's another day. And so Paul sends Timothy off to the church in Ephesus. And so he follows him with this letter. And he says, Timothy, this is what I want you to understand. And he breaks down for him so many things about what Timothy needed to help the church know about how they were to be in relationship with each other so that they could be in relationship with the world in a healthy way. And so Paul breaks down relationships with husbands and wives and slaves and masters and and church elders and all of these things. He, He lays it all out for Timothy. And then he gets to this really interesting point right at the end of chapter 3. It's just a few little verses, almost like a transition. If you blink, you might miss it, all right? So don't blink, eyes wide open. Let's have a look at this passage in 1 Timothy chapter 3, starting at verse 14. He says, I'm writing these things to you now, even though I hope to be with you soon, so that if I can't come for a while, you will know how people must conduct themselves in the household of God. This is the church of the living God, which is the pillar and support of truth. Hmm. Without question, this is the great mystery of our faith. Christ appeared in flesh and was shown to be righteous by the Spirit. He was seen by angels, he was announced to the nation, he was believed on the world and was taken up into heaven. Blink, you might miss it. But Paul gives us a really interesting insight into who we are called to be as the gathered believers of Christ. We are actually called to be the pillars and support of truth. Hmm. How on earth do we do that in our culture? Paul's saying, 
us, as those who have experienced the salvation and the grace and the enormous miracle of transformation in our lives as Christ comes and dwells within us and transforms us from the inside out, those of us who have traveled the work that God is doing in our lives and experienced his unrelenting faithfulness no matter how many times we've stuffed up and he's brought us back, those of us who know his heart, not just for us but for the community, are to do what? We're to be the pillars and the support of truth. In other words, we are actually called to hold truth to be visible to the world. There's strength in a pillar. It puts truth on display. It doesn't throw it at people, but it puts it on display so that the whole world can see it. And what is this truth? Well, it's not most of the things we talk about on Facebook. This truth, Paul says, this mysterious and great mystery of our faith is this song, this early Christian song, Christ appeared in flesh, was shown to be righteous by the Spirit, was seen by angels, announced to the nations, was believed on by the world, was taken up into heaven. What is this truth? This truth is the gospel and the message, the good news about Jesus Christ. That is the truth that we are called to have on display for all to see. And we can only do that when we're in a healthy place in our relationships with each other. And when we understand what truth is. Because maybe truth isn't just our opinion. Maybe it is the very message of the gospel itself. That Jesus Christ would abandon his own glory to come and to dwell amongst you and me, to come and to dwell amongst humanity, that he would point us to the heart and the grace and the love and the truth of the Father. And that in his death and his resurrection, he would make a way for us that we could not do in our own strength, no matter how hard we tried. The truth that we have to be on display is that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The truth that we need to display is that we do not boast in our own works because we are saved by grace in him alone. The truth that we have to display is that for God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believed in him would not perish but have eternal life. That is the truth. It is not opinion. It is The truth that we are called, having experienced it, having grounded it, not just in what feels good to us, but in an understanding of the whole history of the story of the people of God. In scripture, as we test and and work through and, and discover more of who God is, as we look at creeds, as we look at tradition, as we look at doctrine, as we look at worship and the message of the gospel that we sing week after week after week after week, that we would ground ourselves in truth so that we can display it well for others to see. 
Because if we don't do this, and here's where it really gets me, if we don't do this, not only can the world not see a truth beyond themselves, because let's face it, they can't save themselves, just like we can't. But as we're raising up the next generation of Christians, young people who are growing up in a culture where you can believe anything you want and that be your truth, as long as it feels comfortable to you, we end up getting discipleship really messed up. I saw this a a couple of months ago. I was reading something written by a young adult. And in it, it was a whole other thing, but in it I noticed this little paragraph where they were justifying and and explaining a a shift that they had made in their theology, in their fundamental understanding of God. And this was quite a significant shift, one I was surprised to see based on the church that they'd grown up in. And the entire explanation was that it felt right. In other words, it was more comfortable to believe this about God than to believe this. Because if we don't raise the generations, those young people, those teenagers, those new people to faith, to to have a grounding in, in the gospel of who Jesus is, not based on their own personal opinion and what feels comfortable, not based on what my heart thinks is right, but based on the story of God revealed in Scripture, spoken over the generations through the the prophets and the teachers and the apostles and the the generations of faith that has come, when we we start to ground our people, our, our young people in this, we give them a foundation to become pillars where they can reveal truth to others. It's so important we get this right. Because we're past a tipping point in our culture. In Australian Western Christian culture, we are past the tipping point. Where the people who will be coming to faith in the next 10, 20 years, won't be people coming back to a faith they had in their childhood where they have some foundation in the story of God. They will be people who have zero knowledge of who Jesus is. None. Whether it's, uh, you know, Aussie-born or second-gen, they just haven't grown up in church. They don't know the story of Jesus. And so our discipleship for them needs to look different and it needs to look healthy, challenging sometimes the the presumptions of our society about truth and actually grounding them in an understanding that is solid and rich and deep of who Jesus is. It needs to start with this is a Bible. It has two parts, the Old Testament and the New Testament. This is how you read it. This is how you hear from God. This is what was meant in this. And the more and more I think about it, and the more and more I'm challenged as I walk alongside people who have walked into our church who have no Christian background whatsoever, the more I realize that I need 
to be solidly grounded in the truth of the gospel for myself. Because I can't be a pillar, we can't be a pillar that, that dares to hold forth the good news about Jesus Christ for the world if we are not solidly founded, knowing his deep truth, knowing what it means to live with truth and love, knowing what it means to know God as both righteous and gracious. We need a deep, rich faith in order to be able to dare to be the church of the living God that would hold the truth of who Jesus is forward to a hurting, to a broken, to a tired world who is one by one realising that they can't do this on their own. I mean, what would it look like? Not just for yourself, but for a community of believers to be richly grounded in the gospel of Christ, to know his story as your own story as you walk and follow him. So that as people walk in this space, as you interact with people in the world, you're not throwing truth at them, but you're inviting them to see the truth you are living out. What would that look like? Because I kind of think that's the whole point. And so for the challenge for me as I, as I read this passage, as I'm reminded of Paul's instructions to Timothy, I, I kind of hear them for myself and I hope we hear them for ourselves in a fresh and new way today. That we are called to be the pillars of truth. The pillar and support of the truth. And to do that, we need to build rich and strong foundations in our own understanding of who God is. We need to know his story as our own. Let me pray for you this morning. Lord, I thank you that you did not leave us in a space where we had to work this all out on our own. Because let's face it, we would have come up with seven billion different ways. But Lord, as we awaken that faith within us, as we discovered you, you called us into the story of who you are that you have been writing throughout history. That we do not come with fresh and unseen eyes into, into a relationship with you where we have to start from scratch in discovering your hope and your heart. But Lord, we enter into that family of God, the household of God, the living church of Jesus Christ. We are called into your story, into your revelation throughout history. And Lord, some of us have been allowing missteps and offshoots in our, in our thinking about you. We have jumped to assumptions or come to conclusions 
not based on the richness of your word, not based on the, the history and the tradition, not based on the, the creeds that have been affirmed through generations or the wisdom of, of older, uh, more mature believers, Lord, but we have come to conclusions because they made sense with the limited understanding we had. And Lord, I invite you in this space to challenge those assumptions we've made about you. Lord, that we are made in your image and not called to make you in an image that suits us. Lord, for the times when we think that your anger outweighs your love, Lord, we repent. Lord, for the times where we think your love excuses our behaviour, gives permission for us to do whatever we want. We say we're sorry. And Lord, as we have forgotten our own salvation, the beauty of encountering the good news of Jesus Christ, who took death for us, who rose again for us, Ground us and our faith again in your story. That as we follow you, our rich and deep, our deep faith would just be stirred. That we would be able to be a people gathered, wholly set apart, not just for ourselves, for the sake of our own hearts, for the sake of our own community, Lord, but we would be a people gathered, wholly loved by you, who would understand the truth of your word and be able to lift that truth as a sign and a symbol and a hope to those in our lives, those in our communities, those in our nation and the world, Lord, who desperately, desperately need you. In Jesus' name, amen.